how can we bring authentic cultural experiences to our students in the classroom? In this episode, I'm joined by teacher and fellow podcast host Jennifer White, who speaks with me about her experience as a self-described Afro-Latina teacher in the rural South. She has a podcast aptly titled Afro-Latina Teacher in the Rural South. Jennifer White tells us about her teaching journey through Florida, Georgia, and now in Alabama, and how she got more comfortable bringing her authentic self into the classroom and then decided to start a podcast to connect with other teachers. So let's jump in. Are you a language teacher looking for some reassurance that what you're doing in the classroom is on the right track? Or maybe you're looking for some ways to teach even more effectively. If you're one or the other or somewhere in between, you've landed in the right place. This is the World Language Classroom Podcast with your host, me, Joshua Cabral. You're about to get tips, tools, and resources so that your students continue to rise in proficiency and communicate with confidence. Let's jump in. Vamos, allons-y. Hello, my friends. Bonjour, mes amis. Hola, mis amigos. Welcome to the World Language Classroom Podcast. I am Joshua Cabral, and I thank you so very much for being here, for being a teacher, taking time out of most likely your personal life. You're probably not at school listening to this podcast about teaching, and that's what makes you an incredible educator. So thank you for taking that extra step and being just so proud of the work that you do, and we are all proud of you, and thank you for being a part of our listening community. So today we are going to talk about finding our personal and teacher identity and what that means in the classroom. And I am incredibly honored today to have my guest, Jennifer White, who's actually Jennifer Saldana White. And she is a Afro-Latina teacher who teaches in Alabama. Now, Jennifer is a Spanish teacher, and she's been teaching for about 14 years, and for the last seven years, she has been at the Donahoe School in Anniston, Alabama. And about a year ago, maybe a year and a half ago, I got this message on, I believe it was Messenger, and it was from Jennifer White. And I was like, ooh, Jennifer White, I've seen her around social media. And she said, I listened to your podcast, and I think I might want to start my own. And I have this kind of really cool idea that I haven't seen out there. And I said, go for it. Do it. How can I help? And I was just speaking with her before we started. And she said, you know, I started listening and I just got inspired to start my own podcast. And I am happy to say that her podcast is up and running and it is phenomenal. And it has the best title ever, which is the Afro-Latina Teacher in the Rural South. And we talk about niching down. That is niching down. So I am incredibly excited to have you with us here today, Jennifer. Welcome to the podcast. Thank you so much for having me, Joshua. Really, you've been an inspiration to me mm-hmm. as you're one of the first people that I click play on Spotify mm-hmm. for a podcast. So you really inspired me a lot. Thank you for having me today. And Jennifer's podcast is interesting in that she does episodes in English and then episodes in Spanish as well. And she takes on the same topic in English and then in Spanish, but with different guests. So what ends up happening is you have somewhat of a different perspective. We'll talk a little bit more about exactly what happens with her podcast. But first, Jennifer, I think you have an incredibly interesting story, and I 
think it will help us to understand how you identify as a teacher and bring that to your classroom. So can you bring us into your story, you know, going from the Dominican Republic to now living in what you refer to as the rural South? <laughs> you know, I like how you pronounce the rural South because I have a hard time pronouncing that word. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, I admire that. Well, I thank you for listening to my story today. I was born in the Dominican Republic in Santo Domingo, to be precise. And then I migrated from there to New York City, where I became a citizen at two months old. I swore in not having to know any kind of English or anything. <laughs> and I went through the process of going to school in New York and Dominican Republic back and forth. My parents wanted me to keep my, my Spanish language. So they kept sending me back to the Dominican Republic to learn how to read and write. So from there, moved from New York, moved to Miami, Florida, because New York was too cold for me. <laughs> I take it, got sick a lot. And then from Miami, Florida, I got married with my husband, Reynaldo. We moved to Atlanta to try to get some more opportunities as bilinguals, because in Miami, it's a lot of competition. So we moved to Atlanta thinking, hey, we could be competitive there because we're bilinguals. And then when we went there, it was different. It, the culture shock was so different. It's like, I felt like, oh gosh, we're in the United States now. There's white people here. Mm -hmm. Oh my gosh, there's African-Americans people that their soul food is different than the soul food in Miami. I started embracing culture there. I started seeing, man, culture is different. I didn't say that in my head, but I started thinking like, Wait, black people here are different than black people there. And white, whoa, white people, they don't speak Spanish over here. They're not Cuban. You know, it's like it was just different. Mm -hmm. Then seeing Atlanta as a hub for black people was like, whoa, this this place, they just celebrate black. There's black people on the billboards. Mm -hmm. <laughs> like it was just amazing. There's black doctors. There's mm -hmm. like everything. Then from there, we felt a calling. My husband, you know, he was a minister. So he felt a calling from God to move to Alabama. We went there one day, it was like two hours away from Atlanta, went to Anniston, Alabama, and I saw, you know, mountains for the first time, you know, and I thought there weren't really mountains, there were hills, but they were big, big, big hills. <laughs> and I thought, oh my gosh, this place is beautiful. I love this. Look at these houses and didn't have a clue what a different environment that was going to be for me. As we started traveling we started going to church, dri driving two hours to go to a particular church. We went to an all African-American church, which was very different for me because us as people of color, my husband is dark skin, Panameño from Panama. And so you would think, okay, we could fit right in. Was not the case. My accent was different. When I went to Winn-Dixie, people made fun of my accent. They didn't know, you know what I was saying. They called my husband Yankee because he said, they say that he spoke like a white guy. You know, he's a concert pianist by profession. So it's like, okay, he has this, <laughs> you know, he's just different. And and it was it was just a different thing when I was part of the church. It was like, oh, don't, yeah, don't bring that food. Just bring iced tea. I was like, iced tea, sweet tea. That's all you guys drink? We drink fruit punch, tropical punch. We drink that. We drink all kinds of stuff. No, I had to just, you know, they were like, okay, just bring that because you don't really know how to cook. And it's like, what? I know how to cook. But I had to realize, okay, I don't know how to cook soul food from the South. That made me feel bad. I felt like, you know, I'm going to make these people like me or 
appreciate the culture and that's a competition for me it's all from miami like competing all the time like okay i'm gonna i'm gonna make sure they they taste hispanic food mm -hmm. so one time you know my husband was doing some kind of bible study in my house people were at my house we always had people over because that's a hispanic thing just having people over then he'll strike up a bible study or a conversation not really a bible study just starting a conversation and turned into a bible study and then it's time for food so i'm cooking and it's like it's rude not to offer your people food. So I didn't even offer them food. I just gave them a plate of food in their hand, <laughs> shoved it in their hand with this drink called Mori Soñando from Dominican Republic, which is like a dreamsicle kind of drink, vanilla and orange and milk. It was just delicious. And they were eating and drinking like nothing. And they were like, oh, this is good. And I was like, yeah, that's Dominican food. <laughs> that's Dominican food. <laughs> what is this? What's this yeah. drink? Well, orange, orange juice and milk. We don't drink orange juice and milk together. That you don't we don't eat that. Well, you're drinking it now. <laughs> and I, and I now you it. will continue to drink it. <laughs> and then now we had I had black beans on there. And they're like, man, you know, you burnt the beans. I'm like, no, those are black beans. They're not burnt. If they were burnt. <laughs> They'd be bad. Mm -hmm. They have a smell. You were um, being authentic. You were being authentically being yourself. And people were learning from just being a part of your world and your experience. Before we go a little further, I'm just curious yeah. about when you started teaching. So the last seven years, yeah. you've been teaching in Aniston. But when you were in Miami and Atlanta, were you teaching as well? No, I was not teaching. I started all my teaching career in Alabama. Okay. So in Alabama, I've taught everywhere in, in the Muslim school, in, in public school, in private school. Mm -hmm. So no, in those places, no, I did not teach. I was mm -hmm. just trying to find where I was going to go. I was mm -hmm. trying to figure out what profession. I knew I was going to be a teacher, but I just didn't know what kind. I never mm -hmm. thought I would be a world language teacher. I thought since I'm very hyper and animated, I would be a PE teacher. Mm -hmm. <laughs> but that didn't work either. So that's why I went. I went to being a teacher, which love it. Love it. Can't, can't get enough of being a teacher. So at, at some point, you were having this experience of being in Alabama and bringing your culture with you and essentially teaching through just being authentic and bringing that experience to people. And then you said, hey, I maybe want to teach this in the classroom with students along with my language as well. So what was what was that like for you to make that choice to go into teaching as a Spanish teacher? And I would probably say a Spanish and culture teacher. So what was what was that like yeah. for you? I know I like to teach. So one time I went to a principal, school principal, and I, maybe I interviewed about two or three school principals. I asked them, if you were to hire me, where would you put me in your school? And all of them said either an ESL or a Spanish teacher. And I was like, what? No, don't you see me as a coach? You know, I would be a great soccer coach. I don't know how to play soccer, but put me as a coach. No, no, you would definitely shine as being a Spanish teacher. I, I was offended. I was like, Spanish, that's my first language. To me, that's boring. You know, that's what I thought. It's boring. I don't know if I could do that. I was already teaching Spanish and English already to the community for free. I would host classes. I was constantly teaching. Like, I've always been teaching English and Spanish. So, you know, as a free resource in the church. So never thought of it, but went ahead and gave it a chance. I said, this has to be a sign. I thought, let me see what it's like to be a Spanish teacher. The cultural part didn't happen until I really got into the classroom. When I started student teaching, that's when I realized that I was like, oh, I'm black. Whoa. <laughs> I didn't know I was black. 
I thought I was brown. That was a big identity hit right there because I'm watching Henry Louis Gates during Black History Month in this particular public school. And and the girl says, yo soy negra, I'm black. And she's my color. And I'm looking at her like, what? And I cry in the class. They don't, the kids don't see me because they're looking at the TV. But I realized like, oh man, my identity is not what I think it is. I, I need to be true to myself. So from there, I just, I did events in the community. Like we, my husband and I did an event called Discovering America. And we wanted to pull every minority out of the community that's not white and come together and celebrate their culture. So I was already doing the cultural thing outside of the classroom. And then when I finally got into the classroom, I started looking at these kids like, man, they have no clue. They don't have access to somebody like me. I'm like, you know, I wouldn't, I'm like the guest speaker all the time because they don't know anyone like me. When will my students ever go to a quinceañera if it's not, if I invite them? When will they go to a fiesta unless I make one? When will they celebrate this and that? And and then when, you know, when I started at the Donahoe School, that's what I would, I would ask the admin, can I do this? Can I do that? And they will be like, yeah, yeah, go ahead, try it. And it became part of the school culture of trying to do these cultural events. So I brought in the Hispanic Heritage Month. I brought in the International Fair, which broadcasted every student in the school, the parents bring food, that kind of thing. Then I started the Black History program, which that's not what a Spanish teacher does. But there was one student that branched out and said, I want to start Black History at this school. And it was like, whoa, yes, Mm -hmm. because I didn't want to bring it up. I was a little afraid to bring it up not knowing if it was my place. Once that student graduated, then I just took the bull by the horns and just Mm -hmm. kept going with Black history. And with that, with the Black history, it was always merged into my classroom anyway. Mm -hmm. So it was a great way to show it to the whole school. What was your student population like? So you had mentioned that they didn't have teachers that looked like you or brought this culture and language to them. So when you looked out at your students, what were you seeing? Okay, when I look out at my students, I see mostly white Americans from the suburbs, you know, professional parents who are professional. The school where I attend, the, the, the parents are like 100% parent participation. It's amazing. It's like an amazing thing. You get quick response. If you contact the parent, you get a quick response. No waiting. Uh, you know, it's just a, a perfect world as far as parent participation. We do have some international students, such as people from Pakistan, from India, from China. Very very few, but you could see them in there. And and I work in the elementary school as well. In there, I see even more diversity there, but the most, most of it is white Americans. So you'll see in one classroom, maybe you'll see like three kids, maybe, yeah, maybe like 5% mm-hmm. of diversity in a classroom. So I felt that those kids that weren't white, I felt like, oh, wow, I can identify with them no matter where they're from, China, no matter where I can identify with them. I also have a a questionnaire that I ask my kids, you know, what are the difference between you and Senora White? What are, how are we different? And I wanted to see what, what they thought. And the answers are, are interesting how they'll say, ah, her nose is bigger. (laughs) <laughs> or or her hair is curly. Or then they'll say, secretly, my hair is curly. It's just that I get it straight. You know, and mm-hmm. most of my girls in my classroom, they have straight hair. And I always thought, you have straight hair. They're like, no, it's curly. I just straighten it. Then it started going where at the end of the year, students started leaving their hair curly because 
they thought it was okay because yeah. my hair would grow into this big curly puff. Mm-hmm. And and I always celebrated my students, white, black, whatever. I celebrate them. I tell them how, you know, and this is, I could get away with this because I'm in a, in a private school and I'm a, I'm a female. I can say, you look beautiful. You know, you, you look great today. Wow, man, you shine when you wear your hair like that. You know, I'm always talking about hair. And they're like, why is it hair so important? But I thought it's a cultural thing. You know, hair is like your crown. So let's look at how you have brought your authentic Afro-Latina self into your classroom and what that has done for your students. First off, to be authentic. Like, how is that beneficial to students? And then to bring your specific Afro-Latina authentic self into the classroom. How have you done that specifically looking at this idea of it being a predominantly white space, you know, and bringing that authenticity to students and, and why do that? And how does that benefit students? Well, I, I think that the way I have done it is by being an example for any kind of any kind of assignment. So if the assignment is about familia, the family, if it's about going on a trip, any example that they need to do a project about or talk about, I bring out my pictures of my family. I bring out what I do, what I say, what who I'm with. I'm very open. They see all my pictures of every trip I've taken, of where I've been, of of what I've done, where I've suffered, what makes me sad. I bring all my struggles. I even bring that up. And hey, this is what I'm talking about. This is what I'm doing. How that has helped them is that sometimes they see teachers into this, like teachers are in this secretive world. They're in this little closet that that they come out on Monday and then on Friday they go back in there. That's why it's so weird to see a teacher in public because like, oh my gosh, look at you. It's like a celebrity because you see teachers like, no, they go into a little teacher closet and they come out. You go to the grocery store. (laughs) You look bummy. You wear sweatpants. You wear ugly shoes. Sometimes your hair doesn't look good. So it's like I've shown them that I have struggles as well. I've told them stories of my childhood. I've taken them to New York. I've taken them to Miami taken them to Atlanta. I've given them my journey. I told them how my husband and I got married. It's like I bring them into this personal space that a lot of teachers don't want to do and don't feel comfortable with. But I, I don't tell them anything that's going to traumatize them. So it's okay. <laughs> so it's all a story. It's like a book. You're reading my book. You're in my classroom. So you're going to read the story. And I, even when I tell my students, I'm going to write a book one day. They say, Senior, well, I'm going to buy that book. It's so inspirational. And it's like, what book? You've been just listening to my stories. And then the, even the new students that come in, tell them the story about that. You know, they tell them about that story and tell them about this story because they're not in that world. I've brought them, I've welcomed them, them into that world. And sometimes when you welcome them into this world, they feel that they know the culture. So now more students are traveling to the Dominican Republic <laughs> and they're like coming back. We saw that. We saw the street signs you showed us. You told us para and alto. You told us the difference. Mm -hmm. You know, it's like you show them that authentic self and they actually like it. They actually like it. They hear merengue. They hear salsa all the time. They hated it before, but now it's stuck in there. Juan Luis Guerra is stuck. Celia Cruz is stuck. Gloria Stefan with the conga. It's like they're, they're just, it's something that benefits them because it broadens their horizon. It's like bringing in your authentic self broadens their experience because they're only stuck to one experience and it's theirs. Mm -hmm. So when you bring in your personal book into the classroom, you're broadening their experience because they haven't been everywhere you've been. They haven't walked where you have walked. So I have a question about identity and the word that you're using here with identity and 
please feel free to say, you know, Joshua, that's an absurd question. Why would you ask me that? But you had mentioned earlier on your experience being, I believe, in Alabama after having been in Atlanta, you had considered yourself a brown person. And then you sort of saw, oh, people that look like me are referring to themselves as a black person. So that's how I'm going to be perceived here. So you refer to yourself as Afro-Latina. And I'm curious if prior to your experience of living in the rural South, if you referred to yourself as just Latina, nothing as just Latina, I don't mean it that way, but as Latina. And have you always referred to yourself or seen yourself or identified as Afro-Latina? Or has that word Afro been put onto Latina in your identity because of your experience? Yes, 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 for everything. So I considered myself not Latina, Dominican. You know, I was one of those that said, I'm Dominican. Through and through, I'm Dominican. I'm a Dominican-American. The Afro-Latina came in when I discovered that I was Black. That's when I discovered. It wasn't, I didn't see a movement of Afro-Latina out there. I just looked it up and I said, oh my goodness, yes, this is something. I said, I'm going to say, there's still out there some people saying, why do you have to say that? That's so stupid. You know, that that makes no sense. We're all Latinos. Yes, we are, but we're all different. And sometimes we just have to categorize ourselves Mm -hmm. just so that we know ourselves better. Sometimes I felt like I was hiding something with saying that I was brown. It's like, okay, yeah, I'm brown because there's no way I'm white. So Mm -hmm. I would say I'm brown. But then it just hit me. Like my granddad is very dark, was very dark skin. Like we call it blue black. It's like so, so dark. And, And I remember him and he was my favorite person in the world. So I thought, why would I deny my roots? He's dark skin. Why won't I say I'm black? Is it is brown softening the word? That's how I see it. I use it, call it a, a softener. Mm-hmm. Not that it's wrong. My sister has a show called The Little Brown Girl Show, and she's an actress in New York. So she uses that word, and I respect that she's a brown girl. But we're both the same people, and I call myself Afro-Latina. She might call herself Afro-Latina too, but she does say she's the brown girl. She's a little brown girl. So I thought, okay, so she's a little brown girl. I'm a brown girl too. But then now I'm I'm evolving. I've evolved into, now let's just get to the point. I'm black. Mm -hmm. I'm black mixed with white, (laughs) mixed Mm -hmm. with all the other stuff I have in the DNA. You know, I have Mm -hmm. have all that mix. And at the end, when people see me in the street, they see black. They don't Mm -hmm. see brown. They'll see black. Then when they hear my accent, oh, oh, you must be brown. But before Mm -hmm. they see my accent, the first thing they see, and that's what happened when I moved to Alabama, is that I learned that. I learned that what you look like is who you are. And that's how we had to raise our children. Mm-hmm. In, in telling them, look, everyone sees you as black. It's okay. It's fine. It's fine. Use whatever color you need. And I adopted two kids, uh, two two autistic kids, and they're Dominican and white and black, uh, but they look really light skin, like your your complexion, mm-hmm. Joshua. So we taught them, hey, you're black, but use that white privilege. Mm-hmm. <laughs> use it. <laughs> like Adrian can get jobs quickly. He can get a job. He if he if he leaves a job and he's sixteen, he leaves a job. He can get another job so quick. But my daughter, my daughter Lizzie. She can't get a job that easily. It takes her a while because she has the kinky hair. She's darker skin. So we've seen the difference even in my family, and we've talked about it. We don't hide that. Mm -hmm. So I would like to hear about your journey to the podcast that you have created. And what led you to wanting to start a podcast specifically focused on the Afro-Latina experience and really diving into that experience in the rural South? (laughs) That that podcast is... (laughs) 
it's really great. I feel like a, a great way to document things and to write things about my perspectives. I I started that podcast because I started a group on Facebook called Incorporating Afro-Latino Culture in Spanish Classrooms. And I would throw in a lot of resources in there. There were a lot of people that kept saying, hey, do you have a podcast on this topic? Do you have this? Do you have that? And I would be like, no, don't have a podcast. Never thought about doing a podcast about it. As I went into thinking about podcasting, I heard you and then I started listening to other podcasts that may have Afro-Latino in it or Afro-something in it. And there was a lot of people that had episodes with Afro-Latinos. I also, when I started the podcast or thinking about it, I said the word minority. And I and somebody from a Dominican descent told me, hey, don't use that word. We're not a minority. Stop calling us that. They got offended. And and I thought about it. And I'm like, wait, but I'm a minority here. There's, there's just me. I'm the only Dominican here. So I had to like, I thought, you know what? My podcast is going to be about my personal experience in the rural South, even compared to others. So I do interview other people that are not in the rural South, but it's like I'm giving my tidbit of, oh yeah, here in Alabama, we do this mm -hmm. or we do that. Because if even if I interview a, an Afro-Latino from Chicago or from New York, their experience is totally different than mine. They can be part of an organization of Latinos, of Dominican culture or Puerto Rican culture. They can do those things. I don't have that. We don't have a Hispanic organization here. The only Latino organization in my area is mine. It's called Bilingual mm -hmm. Kids. And then there's one down the street in Birmingham that's called HICA, the Hispanic Interest of Alabama. But I can't be part of it. It's too far. I'm alone here. Either my family and I, were alone. And we're trying to build culture around us being alone, trying to find people who are alone too. But anyway, the podcast had to do with that. That's where it came from, what the Afro-Latina teacher in the rural South, because I thought that is very unique. I, there might be other Afro-Latina teachers in the rural South out there that I don't know about. And and as I started the podcast, yes, they started evolving. <laughs> Afro-Latina teachers in Georgia, Afro-Latina teachers in Louisiana, you know, sending me messages. Hey, I'm alone too. Yes, your perspective is right on. And I thought, oh, this is awesome because I, I was a little scared to bring it up. It's too forward. Mm -hmm. Saying I'm an Afro-Latina teacher in the rural South is a little too forward, but it was appropriate for me. So even if you listen to the podcast, you're going to see that there's things that is not necessarily the rural South. It's interviewing others, but it's mm -hmm. like I'm bring, bringing my opinion about it. So yeah. And that idea of building community where you reach people without even realizing it, you know, yes. saying these teachers reaching out from different areas and you're speaking right to me. The thing about the podcasting experience is it is incredibly intimate. You yes. may be driving alone in your car and you're listening to a podcast and it's like that person. It's like Jennifer White is sitting in the passenger seat as I'm driving yeah. and talking to me about this. Or if they're in your earbuds and you're walking or doing the dishes or something, it's like you're standing and talking just to that person and it creates a lot of community. And I was hoping so much that you were going to say teachers have reached out who are in this position, this situation. So I'm so happy that they're doing that. And thank you for providing that opportunity for them. Oh, I love it. It's hard. It's very hard with all the hats. I, it's hard for me to say I'm a podcaster. I feel like I'm not there yet. I feel like I'm just sharing. I'm just telling them my life story. Mm -hmm. But I do, you know, I think that I'm going to get better at it. You know, the things with the sound and some torques in there. I'm like, oh, I'm mm -hmm. so bad at this. This is horrible. Mm -hmm. But I thought this message has to get out. People need to hear my story. People need to listen. 
to what's important. I want to interview my parents. And then the podcast started becoming something like, if something ever happens to my mom and dad, if something ever happens to my sister, they need to be on my podcast. There has to be something somewhere in the web where it's me and them talking, where it's me and them. That's not the main purpose, but sometimes you're like, you know what? Let me think about that with other people. So like recently I interviewed a couple that they're interracially married and my podcast is about being interracially married in the 70s and they lived in Alabama. So I thought, whoa, this podcast is going to be such a beautiful gift for their grandchildren and great-grandchildren to hear their grandparents just openly talk about their struggles about how they got married and how they got, you know, discriminated against. And to me, that is gold. It's like, yes, mm-hmm. <laughs> we're doing this. We're doing this. We're They're not famous. And that's mm-hmm. what I thought is like, there's so many cool people out there that are not famous. Their voice is not heard. And that's another thing is that I like bringing up people that that are not anywhere. You don't hear their names anywhere. Mm-hmm. They're just the best people in the world, but they're not in the media. Yeah. And and I want to do that with my podcast as well. Yeah. So if you have a second here to just tell us why should somebody who's listening to us right now, why should they jump onto Spotify or Apple Podcasts and look for Afro-Latina teacher in the rural South? What are they going to get out of spending that time with you? I think they're gonna, they're probably gonna laugh because I laugh at myself a lot. They're probably going to learn something. They're probably going to learn something about culture because my, the podcast is mainly about culture. And, and sometimes culture is something that you cannot learn enough of. You could watch enough documentaries, you could watch a bunch of YouTube channel, but it's just another perspective of culture. And sometimes we downplay culture, but culture is everything in our classrooms as teachers, as anybody working anywhere you need to consider someone's culture or else you could really mess things up. They could be your same race, your same ethnicity, but if they're from a different culture, and that's why I feel like the podcast is important because I'm a different culture than my sister, Jenny Ling, in New York. (laughs) She's Mm -hmm. a New Yorker. I'm not a New Yorker and we're sisters. So I want listeners to hear that perspective. So that I think will be very inspiring. And I also like the fact that you have your episodes that are English and Spanish, not the same episode, like one episode's in English, one's in Spanish. So for the Spanish teachers who may not be native speakers who are listening, it's an opportunity for them to have a Spanish podcast as well, Spanish language to keep up their language skills. So thank you for offering it in both. I know that's not an easy thing to do because you have to find... You have to have, find guests that can do the interview in Spanish on this topic and then find the one for guests for the English episode. I know that is that is a lot of work. Speaking as someone who is on this end of putting podcasts together, I do understand all that goes into that. So thank you. Thank you. Thank you so much. You're welcome. So where are you continuing to find your inspiration from? to keep up with this work, to continue living where you live and being authentic where you're being authentic? I I have to travel. I have to leave out of here. I have to constantly leave. And and if you follow me on, on Facebook or any of those social media, you'll see that, oh, there she goes again. She's somewhere else. I'm either in conferences because I'm a conference junkie and going to conferences, you meet other people, other inspiring people, especially world language teachers, which world language teachers is my safe space where I can say anything and no one's looking at you like you're crazy (laughs) you could be anybody there also with traveling you get to do a comparison 
Um, lately, my, my inspiration has been visiting to the Dominican Republic. I was there for Thanksgiving and I got to teach English for a whole day for four hours to students. And it was a school with no electricity, no running water. And I had to come home and remember, gosh, I got it good. I got it good. I need to help more people. My inspiration usually comes from that. It comes from going places where it's not putting my feet up and resting. Sometimes I have to go to places where it's going to make me cry. It's going to make me feel bad. It's going to make me reflect. So traveling is definitely, traveling outside the box, I guess, mm-hmm. is definitely something that I love to do. So that that's where my inspiration comes from. Excellent. I did have the opportunity to visit the Dominican Republic once. It was probably about eight or nine years ago, and it was a very specific trip there. It was with GYLI, which is the Global Youth Leadership Institute, and it was a week-long course looking at the birthplace of slavery in the Americas. So, yes, it was incredible. It was sort of the... Christopher Columbus experience, but like the truth of it. And then the second half of the week was focused on Haitian Dominican relations. Oh, wow. That's um, on the island. It was all by itself. (laughs) Yeah, it was it was incredible. So GYLI is something that if teachers want to do that sort of travel and learn, we spent a lot of time in Harabacoa. Wow. Uh, Yes, I just remember everything. All the signs in Harabakoa said, God is everywhere but sleeps in Harabakoa. (laughs) I never been to Harabakoa. That must be amazing. Yeah. Okay, so now we've learned a lot about you and your experience. And now I want to pull the teacher curtain back a little bit and play my little game of this or that. Don't be nervous, but you game. No problem. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, I'll give you two choices. Choose one. Maybe quickly say why. Nothing ever incriminating. These are easy questions. Okay, Okay, the first one. Um, So you just said that you like to travel and kind of get out of the space that you're at. So when you're going to a new place, do you like to go directly to that place to have the experience there? Or do you want to stop along the way and also experience the journey of getting? Stop along the way and experience the journey. Definitely. Okay. All right. And the next one, if you have the opportunity to move somewhere new and the opportunity to possibly purchase a home, Would you want it to be ready to move in or do you like to have more of a fixer-upper where you can make it your own? Oh, that's hard. That's a hard one. I've been doing (laughs) fixer-uppers. My husband and I do fixer-uppers a lot. So maybe move in ready. (laughs) Okay. little change. little change there. Yeah, little change. Yeah. Okay. And this last one, if you're going to a museum, do you spend more time with the paintings or more time with the sculpture oh definitely the paintings okay definitely the paintings are there particular styles of painting or painters that you enjoy Mm, no i like everything like i said i like culture so i like Mm -hmm. learning learning but i see i find myself observing more paintings than than sculptures definitely excellent thank you 
Okay, so now I'm sure that there are teachers that would like to reach out to you. We may have some Afro-Latina teachers somewhere in the rural South that have found (laughs) their people in listening, but teachers in general. And definitely, I will recommend everyone that you go and listen to an episode of Afro-Latina Teacher in the rural South. But besides the podcast, how else can teachers be connecting with you? Well, I'm on Twitter. You could you could just look up Afro-Latina teacher on Twitter. You can find me there. You can find me on Instagram. Instagram is more personal. I have a lot of stuff. Well, I have personal stuff everywhere. Never mind. Yeah, so Instagram, you could find Afro-Latina teacher. YouTube as well, Afro-Latina teacher as well. And Facebook. Facebook, I'm under Afro-Latina teacher. And also my group, Incorporating Afro-Latino Culture in Spanish Classrooms is a really good group has a lot of resources in there. And teachers like learning. There's people that are not teachers in there. They just like learning. Mm -hmm. So they like going into that group. It's very specific. So it's only about Afro-Latinos in that group. It's nothing, nothing else. Okay. Well, we'll make sure that all of the links to all those various places are in the show notes so teachers can go right there. So before we say our goodbyes, I was hoping you could leave us with a piece of advice for teachers as they are going into their classrooms with this idea of the authentic experience. Definitely. I know that teachers out there feel uncomfortable talking about certain topics of colorism, racism. Just remember that you should feel comfortable with it yourself before bringing it up, of course. So read about it, listen about it, ask questions so that you know whatever you feel confident about. Talk about that. Ask a question in class. Sometimes if you feel uncomfortable, all you got to do is just ask a question and see what they say. You can end it right there because you're the teacher. You're the navigator of the classroom. So you can end it or keep going. If they want to keep going, you said, oh, maybe next time. And you can prepare yourself some more (laughs) for Mm -hmm. that topic. So it's always good to be able to, you feel comfortable with what you have. And even if you have to bring in someone in the classroom, if you need to bring a guest speaker to talk about something, remember that there's the Happy World Foundation out there that has interviews with people from all around the world, any kind of Afro-Latinos, any kind of people that speak all kinds of languages. And you could have those people talk about those topics for you if you don't feel comfortable with it. The thing is that you have to do it. It has to come out. It has to be that you're trying. Mm -hmm. Bring out yourself in there, your personality. Try try not so much to hide. Bring up something crazy about you that they will know about you, that they'll feel like they know you. And that's what it is, communicating and identifying with students and connecting. Connecting with students is the key. Well, thank you so much for spending this time with us today, Jennifer White, and for telling us about your experience and for telling us about your experience of being an Afro-Latina teacher in the rural South and several other places along the journey. This has been wonderful. Thank you so much. Thank you for having me. What are your takeaways from that conversation with Jennifer White? I am hooked by her stories and experience and look forward to staying connected with her through her podcast. Be sure to check out the show notes to connect with Jennifer White and to connect with her podcast. You'll also see the link to sign up for Talking Points, my weekly email newsletter with tips and resources for language teaching. There are also links to get in touch with me if you'd like to work together, either in person in your school or remotely. I will talk to you soon. Bye for now. You've been listening to the World Language Classroom Podcast. Be sure to follow or subscribe wherever you're listening so you don't miss a single episode. Let's continue the conversation on Twitter, Facebook, or Instagram at WL Classroom. You can also see over 250 blog posts about language teaching at, you guessed it, wlclassroom.com.